You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. While the marketing universe is constantly evolving, some corners historically evolve slower than others. Sponsorship has often been one of those corners, and it's not hard to see why. So much of what makes sponsorships effective, the emotional thrill of a great game of sports, the charismatic draw of a star athlete, is ephemeral and therefore hard to measure and optimize. Well, have no fear, because today's guest is here to help. Steve Feuerstein, CEO and founder of SportsBiz, is on a mission to take the world of sponsorship marketing beyond gut feeling and into the world of cold, hard data and beyond. Let's get into part one of an epic two-part series. Everyone, we are back in the most magical place on earth. I am, of course, talking about the Marketing Futures Podcast Virtual Studio. And today, I am I am just really looking forward to this conversation. I want to get into it immediately. We've got Steve Feuerstein, the CEO and founder of Sports Biz in the pod studio today. Steve, thank you so, so much for being a guest on our show. You know, the pleasure is absolutely mine, Michael. Thank you. We had an all-time kickoff call discussion. Uh, I always have preliminary talks with my guests, and it was one of those where we kind of just wish we were hitting record because I would have just taken care of everything. But I'm liking now that we get to revisit this and kind of walk through the state of and future of sponsorship marketing and just everything that that entails. So before we get in, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to found SportsBiz. Well, again, Michael, thank you. I have that same energy you have about being with you and your listeners. And the journey, I have to tell you, was was not your most traditional. Uh, I I have been raised playing sports just as a, a kind of fun, competitive athlete. I played D1 lacrosse in college and enjoyed that very much. And the concept of being involved professionally in anything called professional sports or the business of sports was not even, not even on the radar. It was, it was a pre Jerry Maguire era. Mm -hmm. So you remember those days and it was an era where really the folks who played the game or was passionate about watching the game or went to stadia to enjoy sports. It was just part of your life as a passion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had uh, gone to grad school. I worked a year on wall street but I knew I really wanted to learn Chinese. And I said, boy, if I could learn Chinese, I could really get a a leg up. I thought I wanted to go into management consulting. I thought, wow, this would really empower me. And right before my departure uh, to Shanghai, a June 4th, 1989 took place, which was Tiananmen Square. My goodness. I awakened that Sunday morning and to my own shock of realizing that I never thought what might've happened actually did just happen. I didn't want to be going into that country at that time, but I still had this tremendous urge to learn the language. I had a few classmates in my MBA program who were from the Republic of China, Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan. And I had reached out to them and they told me there was a leading Mandarin training program uh, in that country. Mm-hmm. And I said, fantastic. I, I, I immediately applied to Taiwan University and they had a wonderful Mandarin training program. And I thought I'd be there a year. 
And toward the end of my year, someone came up to me and said, hey, listen, I'm aware of a bit of your background. I was young in my late 20s. And they said, would you help me write a business plan for a high school volleyball and basketball tournament? And I said, with the greatest of pleasure. <laughs> it would be pure passion, a labor of love, never thinking anything of it. And I did that. And I said, you know what? I wrote the business plan. Why don't I try to sell the sponsorship for this? Not knowing anything of sponsorship. Did that too. My first client was Asics Tiger. And, and I think we got $38,000 for two tournaments at that time in 1990. I said, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was I met a few people during that experience. And I ended up starting my own company. And in Chinese, it was called the Sports International Agent Group. And we were at a time in Asia where it was like the wild east, mm -hmm. where anything you put your mind to, if you were there at the time, you could do. So I started the national ATP Open, men's and women's in, in there, and then just started to build out more and more events and fell in love with this industry. And then kind of evolved into athlete representation, mostly international athletes, about 150 Premier League soccer players and PGA Tour golfers. And I got deeper into that world, got very heavy into media, because at that time in Asia, when you think about it, in 1989, 1991, you really, there were not a lot of groups operating, international groups operating at that time, Western, mm -hmm. outside of Japan and in a few other markets. Right. So I got the chance to build a company and just grow it. And he, as I was evolving in my knowledge base and starting to see remarkable positives and challenges associated with this industry called the business of sport or the business of sports sponsorship, I started to realize this is, this is for keeps. I'm now in my 34th year and it's been a remarkable, remarkable ride. That's just absolutely incredible. And as somebody who I have been DIY my entire life, and I'm a musician and I've produced over 200 songs and I've never taken a music lesson. I just kind of figured it out until it started sounding good. So that's just a very, uh, it's a, it's a background that I deeply empathize with. And I know we're going to get a lot of great information because this is something you made with your two hands. So let's jump in, shall we? With, with the greatest of pleasure, by the way, with the DI, I've never heard it that way before, Mike. But I got to tell you, the way you expressed it, I mean, I was in the trenches at three in the morning with a signage manufacturer building signage for our first event, which was with Michael Chang and Aaron Krikstein. Michael had just won the French Open, and it ended up being the largest indoor tennis tournament in the history of Asia. We had 14,000 seats <laughs> to fill in a country that was not tennis oriented, yeah. 45 minutes from its capital. And that journey that I took that I thought would be one year of learning Chinese Ended up being six and a half years in Taipei, six and a half years in Hong Kong, and then uh, you know living intermittently in a few other places, but 13 years in the Asian region, uh, enjoying the business. And that I really relate to what you said, that that's really how to, and thank you, because that's really how to, if someone asked you, how do you encapsulate the Asian experience in the Far East at that time? Because a lot of young folk who are being raised today see, see the China experience as a very different manifestation of really what is now its hegemony. Mm -hmm. Back then, you know, it still was the alternative China. And so it ended up being from 1989 to 2002. And that's when I ended up coming back to the States and continuing with my business here. It's very obvious. You have had an eye level view of sponsorship marketing as it's evolved over the past 
20 years or, or more. So why do you think this one corner of the marketing universe has been left behind in the race to data-driven marketing? Huh, that's, that's a really interesting, interesting question, actually. You know, first we have to say is, has it been left behind? Mm, fair so, enough. So, and the answer is you and I both know from at least when we were kids on the old SAT test, which is all the above, right? Yes. E everything is right. Mm. And in the absolute world, it's hard. In fact, what I always say to people about what we do is that there are so many opportunities in the business of sports because the industry's biggest problem is that it basically has no industry standards. Mm -hmm. so when you think about it, you could be a brand manager, a marketing manager, as many of your listeners are, a sponsorship director, director of advertising or projects. You could be a CMO, a COO, and you're in charge of what could be a relatively smaller budget, who a budget maybe where it's almost entirely focused on benefiting from the number one, the most pervasive benefit of sports marketing, which is VIP corporate hospitality. And you and I, frankly, if today you and I work for the same company and we wanted to go and buy five tickets for a baseball game, we can invite five of our clients. And technically that would be some type of VIP corporate hospitality experience that might cost us $1,000 to $2,000 for the night because we bought them at the ticket, ticket gate. When you go all the way up the spectrum, what you realize is as they increase in their engagement with a sports property or, or an athlete, and we usually classify those as six categories. It's usually the athlete, team lead, association, stadium or venue, because those are not the same, stadium mm -hmm. or an event sponsorship. So there are different ways you can spend your money as a sponsor. And, and giving thought to your question, I think we happen to live, I would say one of the more dynamic and complex worlds of sponsor sponsorship. When you think about its core, it came about because legacy media got to be just too, too, too common, too, too, too frequent where I could open up. I remember being on the plane and you could open up a Business Week mag and you had seven automotive product ads in the same one. I mean, heck, when I was a kid, I could open up the New York Times. And if you followed the old, you know, Ogilvy Mather, you would see one to two full page ads of mostly text telling you about the product benefits. We then kind of migrated into this evocative level because we realized everybody can communicate product benefits and they're starting to sound the same. Mm -hmm. So when we go back to this issue of looking at the data or the, not necessarily the data, but have we lagged behind? I think the, the, the simple answer would be, while I think there have been strides, demonstrable strides, I think because our product is such an emotive product, Yes. I mean, you think about hearing an announcer saying, Woods on the 18th hole, a five-stroke deficit he erased, putting from 25 feet for birdie for the championship of the U.S. Open. And you see people on the edge of their seats with this euphoria and excitement and a pin could drop and you, you would hear it. This enormous, and you get... You get pins and needles. I was about to say, I just got goosebumps from and, that. So, And you're watching whether, and it doesn't have to be the GOAT. It could be any sports event, your, your college or high school team. Mm -hmm. And you and I, universally, and I've lived in a lot of countries, it is truly a universal experience, this unbelievable human condition that we can look at sport. And think about this one, Michael. 
During COVID, what was the only headline for the first four months that was asked almost on a daily basis besides what was happening with COVID and when are we getting a vaccine? I remember the very first thing I ever heard about COVID was that March Madness was canceled. That was the Thank first you. thing. And you remember at the same time, Bach, the president of, of the IOC of the International Olympic Committee, was he was fighting and fighting this That's idea right. that they were going to postpone the Tokyo Olympics. And the, he was in, in, I mean, their view was, and it's very much like the commissioner who's responsible for opening up a new highway. And they do the actuarial accounting and say, well, how many people are we going to lose? Unfortunately, God forbid, but we are going to lose some folk on that highway, but yet it's safe enough to open. And Bach mm. was back, basically the head of the International Olympic Committee, played the role of actuary, basically saying the games must go on because they're bigger than a single human life. And then finally, you may recall that the Canadian athletes were the first to push back in March 2020. And then from that point on, when those were canceled and ultimately postponed a year, what we heard every day for four straight months is, when can we go back to the stadium? Yeah. <laughs> I, when can I watch my games again? And one last point, just to punctuate that, ESPN did a classic story where they interviewed just some folk who were avid fans of baseball. And you may recall the first thing they broadcasted was Japanese and, and or Korean rather and mm -hmm. Taiwanese baseball. I do remember. And they that. interviewed some guy in Missouri or Kansas, and they said, "Listen, do, do you follow that league?" And he said, "Never." And he said, "But you just watched the Taiwanese guys play ball. Why did you do that?" And I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. The gentleman said, "I love baseball so much." that I had to have the visceral experience of hearing the ball from the pitcher hit the bat. And that sound yeah. gave me such joy as a human being. And that is the essence of the world we live in. Yeah. As brand marketers, in, in the sense of anyone who is a brand marketer, how do you tap into the mindscape of a consumer in a way that legacy traditional media couldn't do for you, which you're very aware of. So you added in your strategic toolbox, this concept of what's called sports sponsorship. And in doing so, you realize if I could just reach Michael and Steve and anyone listening to this very important program saying, could I reach my core target markets passions? Mm -hmm. What makes them click? If I can do that in a seamless, effective, holistic way, that's a gold mine for my brand. The Certified ANA Marketing Professional, or CAMP, program is a rigorous 35-hour online certification program developed specifically with the ANA marketer in mind. Covering the entire marketing process from brand strategy and activation to marketing implementation across digital and analytic platforms, CAMP represents the full spectrum of the marketing universe. To begin your certification, go to ANA.net slash CAMP Future. You elucidated it incredibly well. Why there's such a vibes thing to the sponsorship world because it is such passionate emotion. All advertising, all good marketing elicits some sort of emotion. But sports is a catharsis. It is, you know, suffering. It is uh, joy. It are, these things are just absolute spikes of the human experience, which can kind of make it difficult when you really got to bring it back down to the business level of like, okay, we were just part of this amazing moment 
like, did I actually get what I set out to get? And so often it's just, oh, that this, this personality is great or, oh, this team is so hot right now. That's not necessarily something that you can measure, replicate, optimize, which is the name of the game in modern marketing. So can I ask you, why are marketers holding on to this old way of doing things as far as like just going off those vibes and, and what kind of mindset do they need to take to really incorporate this into their toolkit in a way, like I said, that can be measured, that can be optimized, that can be replicated? So I really appreciate that question, and it kind of has multiple phases to the answer. And so why don't we just dissect that together and we can just flow through that. Love it. So the first is sports sponsorship is an extremely difficult endeavor to do well, right? What has happened in my experience is, and I've worked with hundreds of brands, and these brands, when I owned professional sports events or represented athletes, I was responsible for executing Procter & Gamble. They were a title sponsor of many of my events. I had to move cases through six different, you know, skew, six different SKU through 2,500 point of sale locations. And, and all they cared about was, if you move them, we will extend the contract. And I said, listen, I believe in what we're able to do for you. We'll move those cases. We'll devise the right strategy to get those cases through trade at a level that you have not seen before. And we gave them an out in the contract that said they can terminate if we don't. Fortunately, they were with us many, many, many years. And I would answer that by saying, first of all, when you look back at what does it take? What is, let's just hear, here's a better way to approach it. You and I work for, name any brand, just any brand. Verizon. Okay, we work for Verizon. So you and I are brand managers at Verizon. When you think of Verizon, a telecommunications company that is putting in hundreds of millions of dollars into sports sponsorship. It's a really good example you chose. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is, why would a telecommunications company put mm -hmm. its brand behind an athlete, a team, a league association, a stadium, venue, or an event? Why, what would compel them to do that? Well, what we said earlier is, you know, just putting out an ad through television, streaming, digital, uh, newspaper, magazine, radio, you know, streaming radio, uh, billboards, that just doesn't suffice. And we've known that for a long time. That's essential in the typical case. Mm -hmm. But there needs to be a more penetrating approach that speaks again very personally, very directly to the individual within your target markets, whole Weltanschauung, if you will. Mm -hmm. This worldview of my target market, but the individual. And we know that sponsorship, particularly sports sponsorship, is perhaps at the uh, crown of that expression. Gotcha. So when you look at Verizon, they're doing that because as a telecommunications company, they recognize that at, number one, they can stream, they can provide a platform for streaming. So they have the ability to communicate and provide a location for their target market to enjoy a product of choice, right? But number two is they know it's gonna ultimately, ultimately, it's going to contribute in some direct or indirect way to the bottom line sales effect. It's going to increase business, number one. Yes. Number two is when we look at what has been the unique aspect of that decision-making choice is that a Verizon would look at this and as a marketer, 
we're trying to figure out, well, how do I know it contributed? Right? What are the metrics I can use to, to gain an assessment of that? And it goes against the two grains of marketing that, that we experience every day in the world of, of the marketing universe. And in this world where marketers each day have to demonstrate their value to the CEO, CFO, CEO as being an integral part of that very important system called a corporation. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the marketer, they're under extraordinary pressure. Number one is, we, we said before, sports marketing done effectively is an important strategic tool. But that tool came out of a toolbox. And the toolbox is one where that's a paramount one, but there are many other paramount approaches to building the brand, communicating brand, having reach, doing direct campaigns that are directly related to some type of sales benefit in short, mid, or long term. So when we look at this, the challenge of measurement has always been that, number one, the technology has not been there to do so. So when you look at the evolution of what you and I are living through the most disruptive period in the history of the human race since the giving of the tablets in Mount Sinai, and at that level of disruption, we're living on an I'll share with you an article that I just read, I think yesterday, and it was with the founder of Jasper uh, in the immersive tech space. And he was interviewed, his first name was David, and I know it's Rogan, I I forget his last name, Rogan Moser perhaps. And he was interviewed by the interviewer of of Forbes, and she asked him a very important question. You know, when, when I went back 35 years ago in school, in biz school, I learned that you build a moat and you try to build a strong, big, wide moat to gain multiple years of protection for your brand and its ascendance and supremacy in the market. Mm. Think of this, what what this CEO founder uh, of Jasper just said. He said, you know what? What we do at our company, to the question she asked, we are thinking as an executive team, how do we build a product that will have somewhere between, you ready, Mike? Go for it. (laughs) 30 to 60 days longevity. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it was going to be something ridiculous, and it even it, it, it exceeded my expectations. Holy Lord! Just, just let's stop, listeners. Let's think about that. For oh, a yeah, let that sink in. Thirty to sixty days for of pl- not being rendered obsolete. Ah! You know what? I have this discussion daily now with my team. We're building. Uh, a technology, a software platform for sponsors that is where we can use immersive or AI in effective way, machine learning, we do. It's a novel first-in product. Our platform is called Deep Sports Solutions. I bring this up only because it's not restricted to just this gentleman who's on the leading edge of immersive technology. We are facing, and I bring it up at least every other day, How do you prevent yourself from being rendered obsolete in today's world? Because we just heard from Nardella that with, you know, six, eight weeks ago, that all of uh, ChatGPT4 was being integrated into his Windows suite Mm -hmm. and obviously being deployed on Bing. So you might be someone who is like us in Google suite and thinking, oh, my God, do I need to switch my brand over to Microsoft now? 
But then you wake up tomorrow and you hear about a BARD announcement from Google, or you hear about Hugging Faces announcement and its large language model, or Databricks, mm -hmm. or our friends Alpaca from Stanford University, and the model they did off of Llama, which is large language model from, from actually uh, meta AI. Yeah. And every day we are seeing a new ascendance and wondering if I commit to A, Am I going to a obviously have transfer costs to do that, opportunity costs for doing it? And I, is that going to be rendered the second runner, third runner, fourth runner, or possibly obsolete three to six months from now? So now let's go back again to your question about valuation. We are moving in such a rapid world at the moment that in an attempt to use measurements of the 20th century, Many, not all, but many are being rendered obsolete. So let's look at the sports marketing product. I sponsor, why don't you pick one of Athlete Team League Association, State and Venue and Event. Why don't you pick one we could just dissect together? I'm going to go with my New York Mets. So now you and I, uh, I report to you, let's just say that's the structure. And we are now uh, thinking about how we're going to maximize our sponsorship. So we have... What has been historically, let's let's rewind for one second again, because this is kind of a, a journey and we're going to go on a little roller coaster ride. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the beginning of the coaster. There were the big three in the old days, which was VIP corporate hospitality, TV exposure, and some form of brand tie-in that would somehow relate to some impact on my brand sale. And that's primarily what a lot of brand folk thought about. There was something called chairman's choice, which is kind of a figurative term. It doesn't have to, you don't have to be chairman to make it. But is I like, like Michael, our host of this show, is passionate about his Mets, which I grew up on. And I think I was at the 68 or 69 World Series with my oh, dad. Get out so of here. Was, okay, was. that's a side episode for the Patreon. <laughs> so, so we're all in emotionally. And that's where it gets really dangerous. Yes. That Steve and Michael really like the Mets. And you know what, in my experience, and it's just one man's point of view, that's a really dangerous problem. That when the decision maker is passionate about a particular sport, a particular team, a particular athlete, but, but they really were the big three. And, and I'll be frank with you, they were really for many, the big one, and that was VIP corporate hospitality. Yep. Yeah. So if I, could, if I could get that autograph where I'm telling him, uh, Tiger, if you could please sign this for my son. Well, what's your son's name? Steve. And he looks at you, but I thought that was your name. Oh, no, 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 no I, I, that's oh, my son. It's Steve my Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but don't no, write the junior. Don't write the junior. He hates don't that. Write he junior. hates that. You know, and senior was never senior. And uh, I'm actually the sixth, but, but don't write that either. Don't write that. So, so, so the meet and greets with the photos and uh, the extraordinary ability to do some what would be a high level engagement, which is not just the meet and greets. That's just mm -hmm. one element. And unfortunately, it's become so routine that it gets become so copycat VIP corporate hospitality that anyone who listens to this show who has been invited to many events during the year, you can't remember, wait a minute, was that golf tournament Wells Fargo, which is happening this week? Mm -hmm. Or wait, wait a minute, was that was that BM, was that Chase? Was that City? Wait, and after the year, you start yeah. to wonder. And by the way, for me and you, if we're hosting at Verizon, let's just say a special function at the Mets where we have our VIPs, for us, it's a very discreet, unique experience. You and I are the host. And first of all, the planning 
gets our adrenaline flowing. Mm-hmm. It's a big labor of, of, you know, it's a big preoccupation or occupation yeah. to get ready for that VIP hospitality. We take it very seriously, but for the VIPs most routinely, and particularly for super VIPs, in about a week or two, they may not remember which company invited them to that event. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point of like the more valuable and sought after the person, the more you're probably white noise. There you go. Because right. then I did the AT&T suite at the Knicks. I did our friends from Boost. I then had T-Mobile. And I keep getting invited by the banks, the institute. I mean, I'm invited by everybody. And not mm-hmm. only am I invited to sport, I'm invited to community events. I'm invited to arts and the opera. I'm invited to music events, concerts. So, so it's very, we don't live in a bubble. But we feel like we live in a bubble because it feels so special because we have the best product in the world that we're usually a part of. And it feels like for some reason that sports sponsorship should be taken very seriously. And it should. But the challenge is, and I'm not forgetting value, believe me, you, but I know we discussed we're going to have a kind of free flowing. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happens is it becomes to the point that the person who inherited the chairman's choice or now in the modern era, hopefully the people who are making an informed decision of why we're, we're, and it can't just be a good decision. I meet so many brand managers and you know what they tell me? You know, I think we feel pretty good about that sponsorship or we felt terribly about that sponsorship. It didn't do anything for us. It was really the wrong fit. And we believe actually that about 50% of the estimated complete hundred billion spent on the business of sport, and particularly in sports sponsorship, we believe about 50% of that spend in sports sponsorship is misaligned. So it's the wrong choice from the get-go. That was not optimal. You don't have to settle for just okay. You should be making an optimal decision. And they will respond, but how do I do that when I have 20,000 choices of athletes? How can we make that? And that's where companies like ours with technology and what's available today are making that that impact and will continue to to evolve that impact for the brand. But the critical issue again is Verizon New York Mets, how do we know it was the right fit, number one? How do I match? Then once we've decided to match, how do we activate? What do we do with the budget we have? And how do I allocate and distribute that, not just in uh, a heuristic from the hip basis. I got to do this with some form of science behind it. And finally, how do I measure? So we call it the big three M's of sports sponsorship, the match phase, the maximization phase, mm-hmm. and the measurement phase. And I can tell you, Michael, for time immemorial, I have not met a brand, and I know they're out there, but for the vast majority of brands, they simply don't have a clue how to measure. Yeah. And they're still getting from the agency who sold them the sponsorship or the, the rights owner or the, the agent and when the agents ask, do you have an athlete that might fit my objectives? Of course I do. I have a fiduciary responsibility. Exactly. Answer's never going to be no. No, I'm not going to send you over to IMG or CAA, which are good, good groups, you know, Endeavor. So I'm going to get you involved in what I own. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Futures Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us next week for part two of my conversation with sports business Steve Feuerstein. The Marketing Futures Podcast airs Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. If you have a topic or guest you'd like to hear in the podcast, shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, 
Find what you need to future-proof your brand at ana.net slash futures. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.